0: Philippians chapter number 2. We're going to continue our study of the book of Philippians tonight. Philippians chapter number 2. As you turn there to Philippians chapter number 2, let me just remind you. In chapter number 1, there were actually six messages. We took nine different nights. We overviewed the book of Philippians. Then we, In chapter 1, verses 1 to 8, we noticed uh, fond memories of a faithful church. Verses 9 through 11. Uh, There was Paul's prayer for the Philippian believers. Verses 12 to 19, There were the things that happened unto Paul. Verse number 20, we considered Paul's faith in brief. Uh, We noticed this quandary over life and death. You remember verses 21 to 26, those are some rich verses. Um, And then verses 27 through 30, Paul is teaching us uh, if we are Christian, we should behave as such. Last week, we looked at verses 1 through 4 of chapter number 2, and we talked about how to have a sweet fellowship. You remember that? How to have a sweet fellowship. And of course, uh, we talked about the advantages of a sweet fellowship. Verse 1, there's the consolation of Christ. There's the uh, comfort of love, the communion of the Holy Spirit. There's the compassion that can be found in the congregation if we have a sweet fellowship. Verse number 2, the ingredients of a sweet fellowship. Paul encouraged two things, number one, the same mindset, number two, to have the same heart about the things of Christ. Verses three and four, we notice what it is that can poison a sweet fellowship, and that there's only one thing, and that is selfishness. And so he encourages us to be selfless, selfless. Let's stand together, read verses five through 11, verses five through 11. The Bible says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thank you for standing. There's almost a temptation in me uh, because of preaching this particular text so many years in a row um, around Christmas time to maybe just touch on it, and then go on to verses 12 and 13. Um, I love all the book of Philippians. This is my third time over the years of pastoring to go through the book of Philippians, and I'm getting more this time than I did the first two times. It's just blessing me more. But um, but but I don't I don't want to skip over it. I, I want to look at it. Now, the last two years at Christmas time here at charity, I've not preached from this text. I preached it last year up at Brother Trivitz when I went with the group last year uh, in the Sunday service that we were able to join him there. Um, But other than that, it's been a couple of years here since we've looked at the text. But I love this text. It's one of the richest concerning Christ. The theme is supreme because it is about Christ, his person, and his work. It's all contained in a matter of just a few verses of Scripture. But he begins it with, um, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. In case we don't get this far tonight, I, I love down in verse number 8 where the Bible says, he humbled himself. There are many that preach on the humiliation of Christ, there are many who have written about the humiliation of Christ, uh, but he humbled himself. Don't ever forget that. He did it, he came to die. He humbled himself. Had he not yielded himself, had he not surrendered himself, had he not given himself, they'd have never taken him in the Garden of Gethsemane. They'd have never nailed him to the cross. Nobody would have ever taken the fist and doubled it and hit him in the jaw. Nobody would have ever plucked his beard out. It would have never happened had he not humbled himself. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever forget that. Um. I want to speak under the same three headings I would if I preached this Christmas season coming up. We're all living. Um, Verse number 6, he deals with the deity of Christ. Verses 7 and 8, he deals with the humanity of Christ. Verses 9 through 11, he deals with the glory of Christ. In dealing with his deity, he gives us his lofty person. There's none like him. As a matter of fact, he is the great unlike. There's nobody else like him in all of heaven. You say, but there's God the Father and God the Holy Ghost. But he is the great unlike. He is the God-man. Concerning his humanity, Paul brings us into his lowly passion. There's something that drove him while he was here. And you know what that is. That was to bear our sins in his own body. That was his passion. There were times when the Bible says his hour was not yet come. That hour was to die for us um, upon the cross of Calvary. To shed his blood for our sins. That the innocent and the pure would die for the guilty. Marvel of marvels. Um, Concerning his glory, that's his lordly position. You know that as well as I. But he's not just prominent here in this passage, he is, he is preeminent. If you'll remember whenever we were overviewing the book of Philippians, it's easy to establish there are a lot of different themes taken up with in the book of Philippians, but joy is the note that gets hit and rung over and over again. Eighteen times joy, rejoice, rejoicing, and the such like. And I made a statement uh, when we come to chapter two. You remember in chapter number one we talked about You see, Paul and his bonds, he writes about my bonds four times in chapter number one. It's one of his four prison epistles. But I made the statement that you can tell a lot about a preacher, me, these preachers here with us tonight, by what we do with Christ. Paul, in all of his writings, he don't get many words out until he mentions Jesus. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, our Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus, or the Son of Man, or the Son of God, or God, the eternal Son. And Miss Katie Knight, they're up, of course, at, um, of course, Brother Jay is headed to Georgia right now as we are in this service, but his wife, uh, Miss Katie, sat there and she said, I just took it upon myself and told me at class last fall. She said, I forget just how many, it would behoove you to go through and And either underline or highlight how many times in the book of Philippians, four brief chapters, Paul doesn't get one subject dealt with or two or three sentences out. And some 80 or 90 times in these four chapters, he mentions Christ. You cannot make too much of him. You cannot make too much of him. The French historian from the 1800s, Joseph Renan, he said this. He said, let the greatest surprises of the future come, but never has there arisen, nor never shall there arise another like Jesus Christ? I was sitting with Brother Jonathan Thacker and his people there, the last meeting we were in in November uh, up in Bakersville, North Carolina. And on Sunday night, uh, their song leader said, Turn to Hallelujah, what a Savior. And I just took it in. You ever just sit there and take it in? And so I couldn't, I, I, my mind went across that. My mind comes across that. That song every time I come to this passage, that old hymn that Philip Bliss penned down so many years ago, it magnifies Christ in his work. Listen to these these five verses. Man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior! Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he, full atonement can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior! Lifted up was he to die, it is finished was his cry. Now in heaven, exalted high. Hallelujah, what a Savior. When he comes, our glorious king, all his ransomed home to bring, then anew his song we'll sing. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Thomas Hastings wrote, no mortal can with him compare among the sons of men. Fair is he than all the fair who fills the heavenly train. I say with Mr. Bliss and with Mr. Hastings that there's none like him. Hallelujah. Hallelujah means praise Yahweh, right? And it's translated in the Old Testament Psalms, praise ye the Lord. It's always right to praise him. It's right to praise him on the mountaintop, and it's right to praise him in the valley. It's right to praise him when you wake up in the morning and you're fresh and brisk, and it's right to praise him at the end of a long day. Um, Nobody compares to him. He outshines them all. The Shunammite, we know she was speaking of Solomon in the Song of Solomon, chapter number 5. But it's a picture and type of the church singing unto Christ and Christ unto the church. She said, yea, he's altogether lovely. She said, he's the chiefest among 10,000. She said, put him in a room where there's 10,000 of the world's wisest and he stands, he towers above those. Those who are the most powerful, put 10,000 in a room somewhere. He towers above those of the most majestic this world can offer. Gather 10,000, put them in a coliseum when he walks in. He towers above those. I say hallelujah, what a Savior with Mr. Bliss tonight. Aristotle, Socrates, and Plato the world's three most well known philosophers and they taught for 130 years and people still quote them Jesus taught for only three and his teachings have so outreached those of the three greatest philosophers and uh, I want to I want to quote someone else here if you have never gone online and listened to SM Lockridge's uh, classic sermon that's my king you're to listen to it it's a classic it's a classic. And, and this is just a few excerpts from it. He was preaching. And Lockridge had a great wisdom and insight, didn't he? Adrian Rogers said a white man, I say, a white preacher, will say five things out of a text or five things about a text. He said, but a black preacher, he said, say the same five things five different ways, say the same thing five different ways. Listen to what Lockridge said said while he was preaching that great sermon. I can hear him right now just like a cadence, like a Cadillac behind the sacred desk. And that raspy voice saying, that's my key. He said, the Bible says, my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He said, that's my king. And then he said, I wonder, do you know him, my king? And then he said, my king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He said, He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's partially merciful. He said, Then he asked, He said, Do you know him, my king? He said, He's the greatest phenomenon that's ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's the sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled and he's unprecedented. He paused and got his breath. He said, my king, he said he's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be the all-sufficient savior. He said, I wonder, do you know him today, my king? He went on to say he supplies strength to the weak he's available to the tempted and tried he sympathizes and he saves he strengthens and he sustains he guards and he guides he heals the sick he cleans the lepers he forgives sinners, he discharges debtors, he delivers the captive, he defends the feeble, he blesses the young, he serves the unfortunate, he regards the aged, he uh, rewards the diligent, he beautifies the meek. And then he said, I wonder, do you know him? And then that, that deep, raspy voice, he said, that's my king. I hear him tonight in my mind. Just a little more of his sermon." He said he's the key to knowledge, he's the wellspring of wisdom, he's the doorway of deliverance, he's the pathway of peace, he's the roadway of righteousness, he's the highway of holiness, he's the gateway of glory. And then he said, do you know him? And he yelled at that time, do you know him tonight? He went on and said his life is matchless, his goodness is limitless, his mercy is everlasting, his love never changes, his word is enough, his grace is sufficient, his reign is righteous, his yoke is easy, and his burden is light. Then he said, I wish I could describe him to you. He then went on to say he's indescribable, he's incomprehensible, he's invincible, he's irresistible. He said, you can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off your hands. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Two more lines from his sermon. He said, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. And then he said, Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. then he said, hey, that's my king. That's my king tonight. And when you come to this passage, you come to a lordly passage. It's about the king. Uh, Our old pastor, Amanda, will remember when I say this. He'd get stirred up and then he'd go to preaching about King Jesus. He'd call him King Jesus. He'd talk about the kings of other places and then he'd say, but they don't uh, compare to King Jesus, my king. Here Paul presents Christ in such a way. Hershey Davis said, it's the sublimest passage. And sublimest is not even a word. He was a theologian. He said it's the sublimest passage in all of Paul's writing about Christ. Roy Lauren, the devotional writer of commentary material. Roy Lauren said it's one of the greatest and most profound statements in all the Bible. Charles Lamb said, he said, I'm reminded when I come to this passage, if Shakespeare walked into the room, we'd all stand. But if Jesus walked in, we'd all fall on our faces. Consider with me the deity of Christ, verse number 6. The deity of Christ. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. His deity. his being God. He mentions here the essence of his person. He writes in verse number 6, who being in the form of God. This word form does not talk about the shape or the silhouette of God, but the essence of God. Who being in the essence of God, of the same essence as God. You remember John chapter number 1, verse number 1. John the apostle wrote, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. and He said, by the way, the Word was God. You remember what the angel had to say. The angel said, prior to his birth, they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. God with us. He is God, a very God. The essence of his person, who being in the form of God, in all of his traits, in all of his characteristics, Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, is God. He's not some heavenly bellboy. Somehow we think we can run him up in a corner, force him to do what we want him to do. You'll never manipulate him. He's not some, not some heavenly bell boy or bus boy. He's not JC in the house. He's not the big daddy in the sky. He's not just the man upstairs. But he is God. That's who he is. That's who saved me. The God-man Christ Jesus. The essence of his person, the eternality of his person. You notice again verse number 6. He says, who being in the form of God. That word being carries with it the idea of existing or subsisting. He says, who being, who existing in the form of God. Who who subsisting in the form of God. Before he ever was a man, he was God. and all of eternity, he's God. Before there ever was a world, he's God. Before there ever were any stars. You know, we like that poetic language that we preachers sometimes use, and we talk about how he flung the stars into space. But really, he didn't do that. He just said, let it be, and it was. He flung his voice out into space. That's who we worship tonight. His eternality. He said in John 8, in verse number 58, group of jews were saying uh, we have abraham our father god is our father's their claim and he said i tell you something he said before abraham was i am i am i think sometimes in the minds of uh, church going folk folk think if the lord will ever get any better i'll i'll get in on what he's doing i'll get in on him he won't ever get any better Do you hear what i said he's perfect He won't ever get any better. He's not learning anything tonight. His omniscience is perfect. He he needs nothing outside of himself to exist. Um, Sometimes, sometimes we say, um, you know, we'll be preaching or teaching or trying to witness to somebody. and We'll say, well, now the Lord needs you to, the Lord don't need you to do anything. The Lord don't need anything tonight. Matter of fact, the only thing in the Gospels that we're aware of, I heard a preacher point this out in North Carolina last year. He said the only time, as far as he could tell, in the Bible that that the Lord ever said he had need of anything, it was that old donkey that he got on the back of and rode out his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. If that be the case, if you have need of anything, it's just a bunch of old donkeys. And by the looks of most of us, we fit the bill. He ain't going to get no better, friend. He's not going to get any better. We, we try to put a guilt trip on when we want to have revival, right? It, we'll say, boy, if y'all get right, if I'll get right, if we'll get right, uh, God will send revival. Did you know when God has blown through this country on three major occasions and affected this whole country, did you know it was a spontaneous move of God. You cannot twist his arm up behind his back. That God would be pleased to bless us in any portion. Or to put us upon our knees and, yea, upon our faces in gratefulness. The eternality of his person. You ought to find Malachi three six and Hebrews 13.8. And you ought to write beside those two verses impeccable. Impeccable. The impeccability of Christ is seen in Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today and forever. In Malachi 3, 6, he said, I change not. He changes us. He changes hearts and lives. But he himself does not change. He's eternal who being in the form of God. Look at verse number 6 again. Who, being in the form of God, watch this. Here's the equality of His person. Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He is one with the Father and one with the Spirit. As a matter of fact, He said in John 14, verse number nine, He that hath sent me uh, hath seen the He that hath seen me. Excuse me, hath seen the Father. He said in John 10, in verse number thirty, I and the Father are one. The Bible says here that he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. That word equal means on the same par with. He is of the same stuff we might say in the South. Um, Some of our denominational friends of a different flavor would say that they accuse us of worshiping three gods. Right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They say you worship three gods. We worship one god manifest in three persons but what they'll say is there's God the Father there's God the Son there's God the Holy Spirit so there's one plus one plus one equals three but that's not the way the Bible teaches it the marvel of the Trinity is it's not God the Father God the Son and God the Holy Ghost but it's God the Father God the Son and God the Holy Ghost it's one times one times one equals one you say explain it you explain When I was up in um, Boonville, uh, there was a fella, and I it won't hurt to call his name. He's out in Texas now, uh, Dennis Lewis. You remember him on the radio, Donald? He'd get on and straighten me and Brother Bearfield and Brother Kenny Digby been all eight straighten us all out. And he was a real hard line, uh, charismatic. And he issued a challenge one day. I was headed to Tupelo to the hospital. He issued a challenge. I was on forty-five. And this is what he said. He said, "I have the keys and a clear title to a." Whatever the make of the year of of a van. And he said, it's in excellent shape. He said, if anybody can show me uh, a picture of the Trinity in Scripture, I'll sign this title over to you. And you can find me at that little old church he pastored over there uh, down from Bancorp South off of, yeah, off, off veterans over there, veterans. And I thought, oh boy, you just gifted me a van. But he wasn't there. What happened when Christ was baptized? John the Baptist put his hands on the Son of God and baptized him in the River Jordan. The Father spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit descended in the form of a dove and lighted upon Christ, the Bible teaches. There's a picture of the Trinity. One of the greatest benedictions of all of the New Testament writings is found in 2 Corinthians 13, verse number 14. Which talks about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Ghost. And it would be our prayer that that be our part in Lot every time we gather together. He thought it not robbery to be equal with Christ. In other words, what he's simply saying here is that, that Christ, being God in his very person, it's not something you rob. It's not something he stole. It's not th- something he took when the father wasn't looking and so therefore became. But it is something that he is. Uh, the deity of Christ, verse number six. And then notice with me the humanity of Christ, verses seven and eight. We just come through and I've mentioned it tonight, the Christmas season. Uh, look if you went verses seven and eight. The Bible says, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, his humanity. He who is deity took upon him flesh and became part of the human family, he robed himself in flesh. He who, in verse number 6, is in the form of God, took upon him the form of a servant. In verse number 7. I want you to look right here at Luke chapter number 2, verse number 52. We don't know much about the childhood of Christ. i tell you what we do know. We do know that some of the stories that are told and are fables, when they say that Christ as a boy would take dust and throw it into the air and the particles of dust would turn into white doves and they'd fly off or where he would move pieces of ground, or whatever the case would be. You say, Preacher, now how do we really know that? We know that because of John chapter number 2, where the Bible teaches us that he did his first miracle when he turned the water into wine at the wedding at Cana of Galilee. I let me show you something. This speaks to his humanity. You ought to mark this verse in your uh, Bible. In Luke 2, verse number 52, I'm talking about the humanity of Christ. Now, there are other verses where we see his humanity, where he thirsted, where he hungered, where he wearied, and a number of other things. But look, if you will, you see even early on in his life, very early in his life, the Bible says about his young life, Luke two fifty two, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. That speaks of his humanity. As a man, as a boy, as a child, he had to grow It's amazing, isn't it? The God-man, he had to grow. Uh, Go back over with me to Philippians chapter number 2. Consider with me his condescension, which speaks of what he gave up. Verse uh, number 7 of Philippians 2. Notice this first phrase. um, But made himself of no reputation. He made himself of no reputation. You you would think if if somebody that uh, was of uh, royal stature, and he is the Lord of glory... He is the king of kings. You would think that he'd want you to know that, wouldn't you? You would think of the Queen of England. They've got this Megxit deal going on over there. You'd think if she came to Pontotoc, downtown or Main Street, Pontotoc, you know what would happen, don't you? It'd be reported all over this country, around this world. There'd be state police and secret servicemen and She'd bring her own service detail, her own security detail. And, but everybody would herald her appearance, her, her coming into this area, this hemisphere, this country, this state, this county, this little town. But when Jesus came into this world, he made himself of no reputation. It speaks of his condescension. He stooped very low to come for the likes of us. 2 Corinthians 8, uh, verse number 9 says... Uh, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that uh, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. The Bible says, but made himself of no reputation. It literally means he divested himself. Be making your way to John 13, please. I want to read four verses of Scripture here. You'll get a word picture for the condescension of Christ in these verses. He divested himself. Another word for divest means to empty. He emptied himself. What did he empty himself of? Beloved, he laid his majesty by, laid his glory by to come into this world. He was a man that walked among men, and most did not know who he was, did not recognize him. Look at John 13, verses 1 through 4. The Bible says, that now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world. He loved them unto unto the end. Verse 2. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot Simon's son to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God, he riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. And you know what follows. He'll wash the feet of the disciples he knew it was time. And so he takes his garment he's wearing, he takes it off, and he lays it by. And he takes a towel, and he girds himself. Then he takes a basin of water, and he goes from one disciple to the next disciple, and he washes their feet, which was the position of a servant, by the way. Usually a servant would have done that. When men would have come into a gathering place like this, nobody else would do it, and so Christ rises from the supper table and he does it you say preacher i wouldn't wash anybody's feet you might miss a blessing i've heard of preachers when one would step out of the way when the church would know who it was they would extend the call to and the next pastor would accept the call i've i've often heard where uh, the elder preacher would ask for a basin of water and at the close of his service where he would preach his final time he'd get down on his hands and knees roll up his shirt sleeves, and wash the feet of that. Pastor Adrian Rogers did it for Steve Gaines. It'd be hard to let somebody wash your feet, number one. It'd be hard, number two, to wash somebody's feet. And a bunch of folk looking on. He didn't just wash the feet of, of Andrew, who's in the business of bringing people to Christ. He washed the feet of Simon Peter that would three times curse and swear that he didn't know him. When he came to Judas's care, he washed his feet too. What humility. Notice not only his condescension back here in our text in verse number 7 of Philippians 2, but his communication that speaks of what he took up. There's first of all, there's the likeness he assumed. Verse number 7 says, but made himself of no reputation. Here's his communication. And took upon him the form of a servant. You see what he took up? took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. He took upon him the form of a servant, made in the likeness of men. When you see him in the Gospels, he walks like a man. He talks like a man. He preaches like a man. He teaches like a man. He lives like a man because he was a man. As God, he has no beginning. Oliver B. Green one time when asked, Where'd God come from? He said, well, any old dumb cluck knows that. He said, the Bible begins by saying, in the beginning, God. said, God came from the beginning. That's all we know about that. Other than we know he is the uncreated creator. He didn't begin being God. He's always been God. Or to be more biblical about it, he always is God. He is the eternal is but when he became man, he became what he never had been before. Look at verse number 8. Not only is condescension, his communication, but there's his crucifixion. Verse number 8, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. This word humbled means to bring low or to be brought low. Now we know which of the two this one applies to, don't we? Because the Bible says here, he humbled himself. He humbled himself. Voluntarily, he empties himself. Voluntarily, he stoops low. Voluntarily, in the Trinity, he says, I'm the one, I go. He lays his glory by. It's a good thing he did, isn't it? If he hadn't have, when he walked through the tomb, he wouldn't have had to say, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus would have just got up. Said the Lord has arrived. He laid his glory by. He gave himself to the cruel cross of Calvary to die for our sins. I say with Mr. Bliss, hallelujah. I want to save you. Lastly and briefly, notice the glory of Christ, verses 9 through 11. Verses 9 through 11. Verse number 9 begins with wherefore, which means because of what we've just stated. That's what Paul is saying. Wherefore, because in verse 6, verse 7, verse 8, he says, because of all this that I've just talked about, he said, wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's worthy. He is worthy. Why? Why? He says, wherefore? He said, go back and look at it. He said, just wrote it for you. He said, if there be nothing else, that's enough. He's worthy, and he is worthy, friend. He says, wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him. This word exalted carries with it the idea of exalting to the highest rank. John the Baptist did that, didn't he? And his disciples came, and they had a complaint. They said, he's baptizing more than we are. must be something wrong. He said, fellas, you missed it. He said he must increase and I must decrease. We ought to have that attitude tonight. He's exalted him to the highest rank. Exalted him to the highest rank. Someone has written that you can compare Homer to Virgil, Dante to Milton, Shakespeare to Bacon, Tennyson to Longfellow and even Wesley to Whitfield. But there's nobody to stand up beside Christ to make a comparison with. He is to be worshipped. Notice in verse number 10, notice the adoration of his name. He said of things in heaven and things in the earth and things under the earth. The things in heaven, the angels, the archangels, the cherubim, the seraphim all of heaven worships him. You say, preacher, I'm not worshipping him tonight. Don't think for a second he ever goes without being worshipped. He says things in the earth, that's every man, every woman, every child, all of humanity, things under the earth. The spiritually dead that have died and gone on and in hell. Even Satan one day will have to bow the knee, say, yes, Jesus Christ is Lord. Lastly, the acknowledgement of his name. He says in verse number 11, the Bible says, verse number 11, with this I'm done, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. To confess means to agree and to confess openly. That's what this word confess means. That's what it means. A couple of times when preaching this text around Christmas time I've used, and some of you may remember E.P. Scott, the pioneer missionary to India. He took his his violin with him when when he went to India, and he made a makeshift, somewhat of a, like a teepee type of a structure. And while he was there, uh, he uh, was surrounded by some of the native men that felt threatened by uh, this white man being amongst them that they'd never laid eyes on. And so he, he felt that he was threatened and his life was about to be taken. And rather than being anxious and fretting, he wrote in his journal Then he stepped back in his makeshift lodge. It was his intention to eventually build him somewhat of a hut or house to live in more comfortably. But amongst his bags of belongings was that violin, and he took it out, and he sat down in front of his little teepee, lean-to type of a setup. And he started playing, all hail the power in Jesus' name. And the more he played it, the calmer those men from India became until finally they dropped their arms by their side, went back to where they came from. Years down the road, years down the road, he won many of those tribesmen to the Lord. And he asked them if any of them were of that number. And they... Some he was able to meet and went to the Lord and he said uh, they told him that they were there and it was their intention to take his life because they felt threatened by him being there. They had no idea what business he had there. But they could not explain the peace that overcame them. He taught them the song, taught them how to sing it in their native tongue. All hail the power in Jesus' name. That was their song for years as E.P. Scott led them. Just a few lines of that song and I'm done. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Let every kindred, every tribe on this terrestrial ball. To him all majesty ascribe and crown him Lord of all. One day, every tribesman, one day, uh, every man, no matter what the color of his skin is, one day, everyone will bow the knee and will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There you have it in those verses, but don't miss verse 5, which says... Let this man be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He was willing to become servant so that others uh, might be gathered with him one day. May our hearts be the same. Miss Angie, if you'll come, please.